0: Thank you to our worship team and our musicians for bringing it. They help us enter into God's presence. Thank you so much. We're in this series called Thrive, and it's about our values. And we call it Thrive because that's when not only the church thrives, when we look like Jesus, when we're fulfilling all that He is, uh, but it's also when individual lives thrive. We don't thrive independently, individually in our lives, unless we're part of something a whole lot bigger. And so you'll note the five values, they're in that thumbprint, and that thumbprint, everybody has a unique one. And this is what we believe is, in a way, the unique thumbprint of Jesus. It's what Jesus looks like. He was perfect at this. We're not perfect. We're not saying we're all this or have arrived, but we are saying that we seek to never violate these, and we seek to get better and better at doing them. Uh, And the first one we looked at for a couple weeks was missional. It begins with the heart of God, that... His love is restless, tells us it goes after people. And this is what Jesus did, bringing relationship with God to us. Uh, The second one we looked at is relevant. And that one is a little different than we sometimes think. But to be relevant, the first important thing is to not tamper with the unchangeable content. We don't water down, dilute, or filter who God is or what he said in in the scriptures. That's the tamper-free, tamper-proof content. But we will package it in whatever way, whatever delivery system we can possibly find to get the fullness of that truth to people right where they live. Uh, And this morning, we're looking at what it means to be accessible. And just in light of that, I just want to give thanks for how the ministry here is furnished by your giving to make it accessible and and to just point out, and this is kind of a miracle that happens. We need each week to do everything we want to do this year, uh, about $46,634. Actually, that's exactly what we need um, for what we plan to do. Uh, and we very closely are reaching that even in these beginning weeks. You'll note the, the red, sometimes it's way above that, sometimes it's a little below. We've averaged just a few thousand below that. And the reason we get as that far and the reason we're able to do what we do, and please note, we will only go as fast and as far as you confirm with your gifts. Um, but the reason we're able to do that is so many of you are being intentional about your giving. And we see it. We see it in new people who are regularly giving. I never know who or where. I don't touch the money or the bookkeeping, and you can be thankful for that. (laughs) But those who do and do it with exquisite care and confidentiality, um, they're encouraged by your giving and your responsiveness. So um, let's give God uh, praise (laughs) and rejoice. (laughs) Because a vision that is not resourced is just a dream. But for a vision to become reality, it's got to be resourced. So I'm thankful for that, and we continue to move in faith. Well, we're looking at the resourcing of Jesus' vision in terms of being accessible. And we're looking at a situation and the plight of a man for whom Jesus was radically inaccessible. He was literally paralyzed. And we're going to look at three aspects, of because this is kind of the banner passage, I think, in the Bible uh, for what it means for Jesus to be brought to accessibility toward one who otherwise would be completely cut off from him. Uh, it is the most hardened case of inaccessibility and it's contained in Mark's Gospel chapter 2. So first let's read that word and then we'll break forth the life-giving truth from this word. Beginning at verse 1. When he returned to Capernaum, after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together. This text is about a man who was ultimately in a most inaccessible place, and we we're going to look first of all at the man's plight or need, then we're going to look at how his friends met that need, and we're going to look about how Jesus provided for that need. So first, the man—he's paralyzed; his legs don't work. We don't know whether it was congenital. We don't know whether he had had some horrible accident happen, but if you have ever been immobilized. Uh, you'll be able to sympathize some with what this means. He had to be carried wherever he went. Maybe for some of you, um, you've been immobilized because you couldn't drive for a season. Maybe you had surgery or something. That's a really hard thing to experience. Or you've had your keys taken away. I always say to my kids, They're gonna, you're going to have to pry the car keys out of my hands when that day comes. But he couldn't get anywhere. He was completely dependent and probably had uh, the vocation, and it was a real vocation, to ask for alms. And so he would be placed in busy thoroughfares where there were a lot of people walking by. And because the scriptures command us to give to the poor, uh, he would be one of the outlets for people to fulfill their duties. And he evidently had made friends who knew that Jesus was coming. Capernaum was Jesus' hometown. Uh, there was a synagogue there. Jesus was teaching. It's not that all that far Uh, from Galilee, where Jesus ministered a lot. Uh, And he had four friends who are carrying him. Now, I want you to see all the obstacles that this man had. He's paralyzed. He can't do anything for himself. And he's got to overcome um, that basic need. Um, He can't earn a living um, for himself in any way. And they bring him to Jesus. And what's really, really striking uh, is what Jesus says to the man uh, when they let him down, we're going to talk more about that next, but Jesus sees their faith in overcoming this obstacle, and he says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I think if any of us were in that place with our legs not working, having to have friends carry us, drop us into the presence of God, we would say, hey, Jesus, I really appreciate that sentiment. That's really nice that you care about my spiritual being, but I think that anybody can see that that's not the presenting issue here. Why are you speaking uh, about uh, forgiveness? Uh, And Jesus goes on actually to speak about how this is the core and central need. Now, the, the first thing we've got to see is the people were rightly offended that Jesus was speaking about forgiveness. They are right. The scribes are correct when they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? The reality is we can commit wrongs against each other, but if you look at the Bible carefully, the Bible says we only sin against God. Uh, there's one of the passages where David the king uh, in a wretched season in his life committed adultery and then he covered it up for about eight months uh, and then he covered it up by killing, murdering uh, the woman's husband, Uriah. Uh, and when he comes to his senses and repents in Psalm 51, he says against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Um, It's interesting that these words are picked up in the parable of prodigal son. Remember, the son had liquidated, asked his dad, basically said, I wish that you would kick off, but since you're not, I want my inheritance. He got his inheritance in the form of land, sold off the family heritage, and squandered it, humiliating his dad, horrible life. And he comes back to his dad and he says, I have sinned, not against you, but he says, I've sinned against heaven and before you, in your sight. Because sin is something that is, it's serious because of who we sin against. You know, if, if, if I were to sin against an, just an ordinary neighbor or whatever, like, you know, punch him in the nose, I could be questioned by the police. But if I saw a police officer and I punched them in the nose, I'm in a lot more serious trouble. And if I'm someplace where the Secret Service is protecting the president and I punch them in the nose, uh, I'm probably going to be shot and questioned later. <laughs> because there's a sense in which the seriousness of the offence, the offense depends on who that offense is really against. And when we sin, we're sinning against God, the God who made us, who calls us to something different. We're sinning against his image that we've called to bear. Uh, And so sin ultimately is an affront to God. And so they were right to say, only God can forgive this because it's God who is offended. Uh, It would be like um, the injustice that would occur if somebody came into this parking lot and they, uh, they sideswiped my beautiful vintage Jeep. Uh, and they come in, and they're struck stricken with sorrow and contrition over that. Uh, and somebody at the welcome desk, as they confess this to them, says, oh, you're forgiven for that. <laughs> and I would be like, wait a minute. It's my Jeep. They, they have got to make their repentance to me. And then we'll talk about terms and restitution. Uh, we may have to get lawyers involved in this um, because it's against me personally. Uh, and so Jesus here, if there's ever a place that Jesus claims to be God, it's right here. Because he is, he is forgiving sin, which is the prerogative only of the one who's been sinned against. And so Jesus perceives this, but then he asks a question that nobody's gotten to the bottom of. Uh, one commentary says that in 20 centuries of commenting on this question, nobody has got plumbed the depths of it. He says, which is easier? And Jesus is about to do both, but he says... Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, that question has many levels. Now, for me, and for most of you, the easiest thing to say to somebody is, oh, your sins are forgiven. Right? We can say that, and nobody's checking us to make sure it's backed up by the full faith and credit of God. We can just blanket that and say it. But, but for Jesus, it's very clear which one's easier to say. As the one who has all authority on heaven and earth, simply, he can just say things and bring them into reality. To say, rise, take up your pallet and walk. To say to someone who has no eyeballs, he can simply say, "Be healed and see." He, his word is how he does things. This is the unique character of God. He creates just by his word. He speaks his word. He heals. He speaks his word. He creates things. Every everything he does, he can simply call into existence by his word, except for forgiveness. One writer said, and they said it reverently, but they said forgiveness is actually the only problem God ever had to solve. It's the only time it actually took effort on the part of God. I think I've got to say that reverently. He is an almighty, infinite God. But here's the reality with forgiveness. He can't simply be, you know, like a judge who breaks off from justice and just says, well, we're just going to forgive all that. We know that there's something absolutely patently wrong about that. In In the book of Exodus, chapter 34, God describes himself to Moses and he says, I am the God who forgives iniquity, but who will by no means pardon the guilty. Well, God, how can you be both of those things? How can you be the God who says, I I forgive the offender, but I will not pardon the guilty because the only offenders who need your forgiveness are those who are guilty. And you say, you're not going to overlook the guilt of the guilty, but you are going to pardon the guilty. And you find it's, it's through the costly act and intervention of God that at the cross we find God's holiness and justice and God's incredible grace and love meet together. And you'd think, well, one is going to have to give way to the other, but they don't. They are the full expression so that at the cross both are magnified. The love and grace of God and the justice and holiness of God are magnified. And yet it cost God everything he had. And so you'd say, from this standpoint, it's very clear. And what he's saying to this man He's saying your core need is for a restored relationship with God. What brought this guy, this man, to Jesus, why his friends were so earnest to get him there perhaps, is they saw his felt needs. And Jesus deals with those felt needs. I think we'd have a real problem if Jesus said, your sins are forgiven, go on. Jesus actually cared for his felt needs, um, which were his paralysis. He's going to take action. The Bible's very clear. Our hope is both spiritual restoration and physical restoration. There is no faith that has more of an emphasis on physical restoration than the Christian faith because we're not just looking even at a restored eternity where our spirits live on eternally, but we're looking for the resurrection of the body. We're looking for a new universe that is restored in which there won't be all of these hurricanes and all of these ecological disasters taking place. We realize that our planet is at spins through space is broken and we have all these symptoms, but there's a core reason that for all of those broken systems, it's the core need of a universe and humanity out of relationship with God. And so Jesus He cares about both. And I want you to see he does both here. He he does kind of a a teaser for what heaven's gonna be like. Paralytics will be dancing. Loved ones we lost will be able to embrace there, it will be, all of, all of this sorrow will be more than made up for and recompensed. I mean, Job says, I know my Redeemer lives and at the end he will take his stand upon the earth. And he says, and I, I with my own eyes will see him after my flesh is destroyed. I'm going to return in solidity. It's physical. In a sense, Christianity is the only religion that when you say salvation means a physical salvation as well as a spiritual salvation. But that spiritual problem had to be dealt with first. And so I would say that You know, what brought this man to Jesus is often what brings us. It's the things we feel, but those are the outer rings of the disruption and dislocation we experience. The inner ring that caused it all. you were like a stone thrown in a pond, that first ring is the brokenness with God and it ripples out in brokenness. And so Jesus places the emphasis here without denying all of the rest. And he knows he has a need of body and soul. And Jesus has the prerogative to do both. But the one that by far is the one that was costly and difficult is the one that paid for this man's healing and restoration. By his stripes, this man was healed. Jesus went to the cross to bring about the forgiveness that would result in restoration. That's the first thing I want you to see. The second thing I want us to see is these men's, this man's friends. He could not get to Jesus on his own steam. Now, I want to just say, that's true for every single one of us. We don't get to Jesus on our own steam. There's always somebody who predated us, who provided for us. It may be a ministry. It may be someone who represents Christ to teach that to us. It could be those who made a church exist or a ministry or someone who brought us and brought the Bible and Christ to us with credibility. This guy made four really good friends. These are the best supporting characters for miracles in the Bible. These four guys. And they carried him. We don't know how far, but I think it was a substantial distance because I've been to Capernaum, and the ruins of this house are there, and it, it, was, it, it was starkly rural. And I don't think that a paralytic who was making his living by begging would have located himself there. So they, these are really good friends. And they have the faith to bring this paralytic to Jesus, but they also overcome other obstacles. They couldn't get near to Jesus because of the crowd. So you can imagine their disappointment. They get this guy there. They carried him on this stretcher, as it were, took four of them to carry them, him, not just two, so I think he probably had some size and the crowd has crowded around to the point where the doors are blocked. I mean, you think it's a little crowded in here today, but imagine the overflows blocked, the doors are blocked. You're, the, you're overflowing all the way to the outside. That house is, it's packed tighter than some of us if we mistakenly try on skinny jeans. There is no room <laughs> for anything else. <laughs> uh, and, and so they enter this situation. Jesus is preaching his heart out. We read it, Jesus is preaching, Mark says. Don't miss that. He's preaching the word. That's his, his primary thing. Uh, and they've got nowhere to go. And so these guys, instead of saying, oh, well, must not have been God's will for you to meet Jesus today. They didn't spiritualize it. <laughs> they they didn't say, well, they didn't postpone it and say, well, well, we'll find another time and we'll get there really early. They pressed forward and they actually went up on the roof. Now, you can imagine this. If you've ever tried, and I... I wanted to actually almost enact this in our service today. If you have ever tried to carry someone who's immobilized, you know, with four people, and you're going up? How do you keep that person from rolling off, rolling down, you know? And you're going up to the roof above above him? What audacity? And here's a picture of a first-century roof and house. It's with with sticks uh, and, and then some thatching. And then because of the climate there, thatching's not enough. They actually had concrete there. So these friends would have to carry him up, keep him balanced on the roof, uh, and basically make a hole in the roof. So while Jesus is preaching, again, I ask if our facilities manager could make this happen for us, there would be saws going, you know, chiseling away at the top, there'd be pieces of the roof falling down on people, probably around, around here, um, and all of this racket and noise as, as they do this, so that they can, can lower this guy uh, in, into the presence of Christ on, on these ropes. Uh, what's really interesting is, um, and I, I never saw this before, but it says that, verse 1, that Jesus was at home. So either that's just Capernaum, and it's, it's Peter's mother's house, mother-in-law's house, or it's Jesus' actual own house. Uh, and we don't read of any homeowner who got upset about this. So I kind of go with N.T. Wright and some other commentators who say this was Jesus' actually own home. And he probably just said, Thanks a lot, because I was planning on putting a skylight in. Uh, <laughs> and you guys have done some work to make this possible. But I, I want to just point out to you these are exceptional friends, they were undaunted. Uh, and when Jesus, it's interesting verse 5, Jesus saw their faith. How did they exercise their faith? First of all, they believed that Jesus was for everybody, every problem. I wonder if you are a believer and you believe that today. Have you, have you had the capacity and the imagination through faith to imagine what people who are in your life who don't yet know Christ would look like if they came to know him? Have you understood this is their core need? Their core need is relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Their faith, but their faith also was undaunted. There were so many points in this that they could have stopped and they didn't because they would do anything whatever possibly that they could do on their part of the equation to get this person to Jesus. And you know, I love that a part of this was they they had to drop him from the ceiling, of, you know, from on ropes. And then they had to let go. Because they couldn't be Jesus to him. Their job was simply to get him to Jesus. Sometimes we have trouble dropping the ropes, you know, and saying, Jesus, this is yours. I'm not the Messiah. I'm not the Holy Spirit. But if I can get them near you, then I've done my job. And this is what they did. And Jesus says they have great faith in both the energy to get in there and also the surrender to release him right in front of Jesus as he was preaching with the room filled, as tight as it could be filled, the doors overflowing with people there. These are award-winning friends. And I want to say, first of all, I'm so grateful that I've had friends like that. And you continue to need friends like that. I think this this passage might be the best advertisement for small group ministry that we can have. You need at least four friends who are going to carry you to Jesus when you can't get there on your own two feet. Because we all have seasons like that. I, I am so thankful for friends in my life who won't, who won't let me, when I'm per- paralyzed, stay in that place. And they will carry me graciously before the presence of Christ. But I want to say to us also the challenges for us to be that way for other people who are incapacitated. I, I think of people who we need to actively and aggressively befriend. And in all of our lives, there are those people. I mean, I think of people literally who just, they can't get anywhere. They can't drive. They maybe they've socially shut down or emotionally shut down, they're not going to enter a new situation without someone guiding them. It's not going to occur to them this most inner pressing need is not the one they feel the most, so they need someone to open the door to that. And what researchers have said is that a recent survey asked people who are not Christians, they said, would you be open to going to a worship service? And most of them said no. Then they changed the question and they said, what if someone who you know and who you know cares about you has credibility invited you and over 82 percent said yes if that's the case now no this is not someone who you've just waved to across the driveway have no interaction or relationship with and then you knock on their door and say hey will you come with me to christmas eve or you'll come with me to service that's not what it's talking about but it's talking about someone that you actually invest in have a relationship over time and said yeah if one of those people invited me i would say yes And that's one of the reasons why we're building a new building is because we know that if all of us got firing on all cylinders about this and we're inviting all those people and 82% of them said yes, we'd be at 12 services and we can't handle that many services and offer them at times that anybody would want to come to. And so we're planning on expanding and we're going to expand in such a way that you don't have to chisel through the roof to get your friend here. But none of that works. Accessibility doesn't work without a congregation that's making it happen. And that's not only the only way. The people who we're serving in the farm and the nursery and the children's ministry and the cafe and all the things that make this place welcoming, not only during our services, but during the week, they're making accessibility happen in that committed way. It doesn't happen without a whole body doing it. Not only what takes place from the stage, which is a small part, but the 200 or more volunteers we need every week to simply deliver ministry to people. That's part of being intentional. I love that on Saturday night we now have sign language for those who are hearing impaired. Without offering that they couldn't comprehend. And I love seeing them participate even in the singing with their hands uh, and I can see their palpable joy. It's a form of kind of taking the roof off so that they can enjoy. Sometimes a row or even a row and a half of people who are hearing impaired are experiencing the delight of the presence of God because that avenue is open for them. I love the initiatives that are taking place in our children's ministry for people that have special needs kids. And they can't really leave their kids. Their their kids need exquisite, tender, attentive, skilled care. And we're making all the steps we can and we want to increase it so that those parents who may feel like, man, I'm maxed out during the week. I can't even imagine another event that's going to max me out. We say, we, we're seeking to cover that so that it can be accessible for you. There are so, so many categories of people. And here's the reality. We can't just say to people, well, you ought to know you're welcome. But anybody who really is different than us or who is outside of us, we have to go to great, great lengths to say, you not only are welcome here, but we're expecting you and we're prepared to help carry the burden or the impediment or the barrier and get that barrier out of the way so that you can experience Christ. I'm going to talk a whole lot more about this next week, talking about stumbling blocks and things we've got to remove. But right now, the church in America is in a unique kind of crisis, and it's a generational crisis. Um, This is on our radar screen, but I just want to say, how many of you are under the age of 30? Raise your hand. I love raising my hand with you all. Praise God we have so many. (laughs) Wonderful. It's delusional, right? But in America right now, that age group represents about a third. A third of the American population is 30 and under. And that age group, and particularly talking about the 18 to 30 age group, is the least likely to attend church or to have ever attended church. And 35% of that age group are not only neutral about, I don't know about church, but they're actually anti-church. We're going to look at what some of those studies are as to why they are that way, but but 35% say they believe that church does more harm than good for the first time. Just in comparison, in the the early part of the last century, nearly 100% of the people in this country said that they believed in the virtue of believing in God, Christ, and the church. So this emerging generation is the least exposed to the Bible, Jesus, and the gospel in American history. And most existing churches right now have few members under 30. Some, Many churches, say, have only a handful or none. They're in the death rattle. They're in the death throes of ministry if that isn't turned around. And while they might be praying about this, their ministry style approach and all their investments are aimed at people in their 50s, 60s, or above. In desperation, they might open a, quote, contemporary worship service and hang a sign out, and if anyone 30 or under visits it, they say, wow, if the 1970s ever come back into vogue, you guys will be ready for it. (laughs) It It doesn't register. But not only that, they don't see the things that, to them, are valid points of credibility for the church. They aren't welcomed into leadership. They don't see authentic life. And... They asked people in that age group who were churched, who were positive about church. They said, do you see evidence in your church that your church is reaching out with unconditional love toward people who don't yet believe? And less than half of them could say they saw evidence of that. We're going to look at some of that next week, but that's part of what we have to make the gospel accessible to all generations. So we really, we're always thinking at covenant. We say, We're not having a service or Bible study or event just for ourselves. We want it to make sense to the outsider who's not yet a Christian, who's a skeptic. So we try to scrub it of insider language or things that are not accessible. And we want to make sure it's in a language that resonates with them. Because we know if we don't do that, that's a huge part of the Great Commission. If we aren't doing that well, then we will be extinct. We'll have a huge building that we rent out for I don't know what, because we won't need that. And so we make all kinds of decisions predicated upon that, uh, that I think is part of this tearing the roof off because we know that that generation has to be brought to Christ. He is the answer and solution, and the centerpiece of that need is a restored relationship with him. And so we're doing everything we can, not to be gimmicky, not to just plan things, but to represent Christ in his fullness that has impact for that generation. But I would finally say, as we bear all of that, and we say, how the times is it going to be costly to us and inconvenient to us? As Jesus stands here, we see that he is the one who bore that cost. He says that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth. He says, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And the people end by saying, we never saw anything like this. And I just want to say, I don't think that the world has seen, to the degree God wants them to see, anything like the links of a God who will do anything to make himself accessible and transformational in their lives. And I want us at Covenant to be part of being that church so that as people encounter it and encounter us following after Jesus, they say, I have never seen anything like that. After our 9 o'clock service today, a woman approached me and said, I'm an atheist, but she said to me, she says, Forgiveness has never made sense to me until this morning. She says, I'm, And we're going to talk. But she's never seen anything like it. It's the power of the scriptures engaging the heart. And what people haven't really seen anything like is the links to which Jesus goes so that they can receive who he is. It's Jesus in us that makes us care about that. It's Jesus in it in us that says, hey, I, I know the volume of the music or the lighting or other things, they aren't they aren't for my age culture, but they're doing what will get more of Jesus to more people, so I'm cool with that. That's Jesus in us that says okay to that. Because what we know about the cost of this is that for Jesus to say to that paralytic, your legs are gonna dance and leap and walk you home and give you a new vocation. It cost Jesus everything. And I wonder, I think Jesus had to be aware that in seeing this man's legs healed and start to work, that this was a precursor to the fact that Jesus' legs were going to be paralyzed. They were going to be nailed to a cross. And it was going to cost Jesus everything in order to free this man. That's what the gospel tells us. He entered into our misery so we could enter into his life. And so we're about to finish this point of the sermon in taking the Lord's Supper. And that's the place where we realize that for us to be set free, Jesus had to be made a captive. For us to enter into life, Jesus had to experience our death. For us to enter into joy, he had to take on our misery at the cross. And his broken body and his poured out blood are the way that happens. And so if you're our guest here and you've not yet uh, confirmed your relationship with God, just let this be a demonstration as you see Those who do believe partake. If you are a believer in Christ and you've surrendered your life to the cost he bore to make himself accessible, make this a time where you recommit your life and say, God, I want to channel my energies, my resources, my relationships, everything about me so that I'm part of this bigger picture that you were doing so that this this world can experience the healing power of your forgiveness and and of all the life that emanates out of that our servers would come forward these are the words jesus gave he said this is my body which is broken for you take and eat in remembrance of me and he said this is my the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for the forgiveness the forgiveness of the sins of many remember that you pass and then you take the two in your hands if you try to take them you won't be able to pass them so pass first and then take and then make this a time of prayer interaction with god awakening in your own life, and thanksgiving, most of all, that he made himself accessible to the likes of you and me. And then we'll close in a song of praise.